Morning, church family. Morning, morning. Uh, just proper introduction. My name is Zachary Izzard. Um, almost a year now being here. My wife, Demi. Uh, and it's an honor and just to read to you and with you. Um, we'll open our books to uh, Colossians 1, verses 15 through 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by, by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. That is good news. That's the word of God. Amen. Good morning again, church. Christ is all. Do you believe that? And that, that is good news, isn't it? If you are all, if your job is all, if your money is all, if your marriage is all, if your friendships are all, what happens, what happens when they fail? What happens when they run out? What are you left with? Nothing. But if you have someone who is eternal, unending, always good, man, oh man, now you're in business. Right? Christ is all. Today we're going we're gonna to kick off an uh, Easter series, Easter right around the corner, called The Fullness of Christ. The Fullness of Christ. Guys, I might be having a little trouble with my device, so click for me if it's not showing up. The Fullness of Christ. And so... We want to spend the next couple weeks in the book of Colossians. We're not going to do every verse in Colossians, but we're going to hit a lot, you know, some of the big chunks of Colossians over the next couple weeks, Good Friday, Easter, and even the week after Easter. So find Colossians chapter 1, if you haven't already, what Zach just read for us. Find Colossians 1, 15 through 23. Christ, the fullness of God. Christ, the fullness of God is the title of my sermon this morning. You know, li listen, we come in here every week and as, as pastors, we have, we have nothing else to offer you except Jesus Christ. And we, we are not ashamed of that. <laughs> that that's why we're here. You're going to hear the same message. Literally, you're almost hearing the same sermon every week, aren't you? God's amazing, you're not amazing, Jesus is amazing, trust him, that's what you're hearing. And guess what? That's a good thing. 
Because by Sunday afternoon, you've forgotten it already, haven't you? (laughs) By Monday work, you've forgotten it already. And so we got to come back in here. We got to keep being reminded. We got to gather together. The, the, the church in Colossae, it's a, it was in Tur- what is today Turkey, Paul writes this letter to the Colossians because they, they have a problem. Most of the letters Paul wrote, he wrote because the church had a problem. And, and what, was, what was their problem? What were they getting wrong? And, and here it is in a nutshell. They were saying Jesus plus. They loved Jesus, they were all about Jesus, but they thought they needed to add on to Jesus. They saw Jesus as an entry point, and then from Jesus we launch into more wisdom, or more knowledge, or, or what Paul calls asceticism, like, like hurting yourself, or, or self-denial. They, they thought that that would make them better Christians. They observed all these religious holidays and festivals and, and the Sabbaths, and they would judge each other when they didn't do it, when others didn't do it. And Paul writes this letter basically to say, no, you just need Jesus. <laughs> Don't add on to Jesus. Now, if you think that that is not a problem that you also have, you are deceived, aren't you? We all have that same exact problem. We all, we all, need to, we all feel like, yep, Jesus is great. I'm so glad I got saved. Now, what's next, Pastor Brady? Give me a list. Give me the checkoff list. Not a lot of checkoff lists. Today we just want to soak in the glory of Jesus Christ. And the Bible has given us one of the best passages to do that. Colossians 1, 15 through 23. So lesson one, fully trust the fullness of Christ. Fully trust the fullness of Christ. In verse 19, it says, In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In Jesus. Now keep in mind, everybody, we're talking about a person here. We're talking about a human being. When Paul says the word Jesus, they think, Yeah, I've heard of him. That was that guy, right? That was that person, that man, born in a manger, grew up. He was, uh, he was, he was a construction worker, right? Calloused hands. And on top of that, he died on a cross. He died a criminal's shameful death. And you're saying that that guy is the fullness of God? Yeah. That's the claim of Christianity, isn't it? It's insane. It's nuts. What we believe is, is out there, isn't it? That this guy, this human being, the historic Jesus, is the cosmic Christ. That's what we believe. That he is the fullness of of God. And so if he is the fullness of God, we don't want to divide Jesus. We don't want to get Jesus wrong. We got to get it. We got got to get this right. We don't want to separate Jesus from God. Jesus is God. That's one of the things we're going to see today. We don't want to separate the historic human Jesus from the celestial cosmic Christ. We have to see that, that as Christians, we have to hold to both of those truths, don't we? That Jesus was a man who lived and died and actually died on a cross. And he is also the creator of the universe, the sustainer of the universe, the reconciler of the universe, and he will reign on a throne forever and ever. We have to believe both of those things, don't we? We don't don't start cutting Jesus up into parts or into pieces. And so, let's jump into this. 
verse 15. So make sure you have your Bible open or your device, your phone, whatever you're tracking on. I'm not going to put the scriptures on the screen, so you've got to have it in front of you, okay? You're going to want to track with me. We're going to go through this. Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is the image. When Paul says the word image, certain things are going to come to their minds immediately. The Colossians, as they read this, if they are Greeks, they are immediately going to think of, yes, I know what I, I, Greek word icon. He is the icon of God. I know what that is. That's that big statue in the center of the temple. The, the statue of the deity. Now, I, in, in Nashville, Tennessee, there's a life-size model of the Parthenon. And I've never been to Greece, but I've been to Nashville. And, um, and I've walked through the fake Parthenon. And as you go through the fake Parthenon, when you get to the center of it, what's there? This giant 30-foot-tall statue of Athena. Right? Because she was the goddess of, of Athens. She is the icon. She is the image in the center of the temple. So is that what Paul's saying? Is Paul saying Jesus is an idol? Jesus is a statue? <laughs> no, he's not saying that. In a minute, he's going to say Jesus is the creator of everything. He's not saying that, that Jesus is a created image, but here's what he is saying. He is saying that Jesus is the center of heaven. Jesus is the center of the universe. If we could all go up to the heavenly temple where God reigns and make our way to the center of the building, so to speak, who would we find? We would find Jesus. He's at the center. He's the, he is the image of the invisible God. John said it this way in John chapter 1. Or, or, or Yeah, John said it this way. No one has seen God, but the only begotten Son has made him known. Paul's saying the same thing. He is the image of the invisible God. No one has seen God the Father. He's invisible, right? He's invisible. He's a spirit. No one has seen him. But God the Father is made known, made manifest, made visible by the eternal image bearer, God the Son. God the Son is the eternally begotten Son of God. He is the eternally theology. He is the eternally generated Son of God. The Son flows from the Father and always has. He doesn't have a beginning like God the Father. He has no beginning. He's eternal, but He has always flown, has uh, uh, always come from the Father. He flows from the Father. And so anytime in the Old Testament in your Bible, when you see God manifested in front of people, I personally would say, you, you can say you are seeing the Son. You are seeing Jesus. You are seeing the image. So the angel of the Lord stays Abraham's hand on Mount Moriah. That's Jesus. The, the angel man wrestles with Jacob. That's Jesus. The burning bush, God manifested in front of Moses. That's Jesus. The fourth man in the fiery furnace. That's Jesus. Daniel, son of, son of man, that he, the vision he sees of a son of man standing before the ancient of days. That's Jesus. Ezekiel's vision of, of one in human likeness seated on, when Ezekiel saw the throne of God, he said, I saw someone in human likeness. That's Jesus. 
Why? Because Jesus is the eternal image of God. And then, as, as Jewish listeners and as Christians who have read the Bible, where does our brain go with the word image? We have been made in the image of God. Isn't that amazing? Genesis 1, let us make man in our image. What's the Trinity saying there? They're saying, let's, let's model man after Jesus, after the eternal image. Let's make humanity look like Jesus, be like Jesus, act like Jesus, love like Jesus, sacrifice like Jesus. That's our life. That's our human life, isn't it? And when we got it all wrong over and over for thousands of years, what did Jesus do to get it all back on track? He took on the image of you and me, didn't he? He was made in the image of, of human flesh, wasn't he? Wow, that is an amazing truth, isn't it? He is the firstborn of all creation. He is the firstborn. A lot of people have gotten this wrong over the years. They, they see that word firstborn and they think he's the first created. Our Jehovah's Witness friends would say, oh yeah, Jesus is, Jesus is God's greatest creation. But that can't be true because in just a couple words, Paul's going to say, Jesus created everything. John 1 says Jesus was before creation and created everything. So what does firstborn mean? Again, we have to adopt an Old Testament mindset here. We have to understand where he's coming from from the Old Testament. The firstborn son, two things. The firstborn son is first in rank, and he is the, and he is the representative of the family. Rank and representation, that's what firstborn means. So the firstborn son got the double portion of the inheritance, didn't they? Remember? Not, not or something, let me know you're with me. Okay. But representative also, this is one that maybe you're not as familiar with. The firstborn son was meant to represent the, the whole family. In Exodus 13, when they're coming out of Egypt, God says, okay, you owe me all your firstborn sons. You must sacrifice your firstborn son to me. Why would God say that? Because the, that firstborn son stands in place of the whole family. If God receives that firstborn son's life, he's receiving the whole family. But of course, God's not a maniac. He didn't, he didn't say, literally, kill your sons. Keep reading. In Exodus 13, he's going to say, but here's what you can do. You can give me a lamb instead. I don't want you to actually kill your sons. I want you to give me a lamb instead. The lamb can stand in for the son. And so, whenever a, a Jewish couple had a little baby, a firstborn son, what did they have to do? They had to sacrifice an animal, didn't they? Jesus' parents did that, didn't they? They didn't bring a lamb, they brought doves because they were poor. But the Bible tells us that story. that they, And that was their way of saying, we are giving you our firstborn son. Yeshua is yours. Here's a dove. And God accepted that. Why? Because the firstborn son represents all of humanity. In Psalm 89, there's a prophecy that, where God says, I will make him my firstborn son. I will make him my firstborn son? How does God make him my firstborn son? There's, there's something going on here. Because here's the thing. Here's the plot twist. From a human perspective, Jesus is the secondborn son. Adam being the first. Adam is the firstborn, Jesus is the secondborn, uh-oh, we got a problem. How can the secondborn become the firstborn? Well, God makes him the firstborn. And guess what? In your Bible stories, you see this all the time, don't you? 
Was Isaac really the firstborn? No, there was an Ishmael. Was Jacob really the firstborn? No, there was an Esau. Was Judah really the firstborn? No, there was a Reuben and a Simeon and a Levi all in front of him. Was David the firstborn? No, there was like 11 brothers ahead of him. God is really good at taking the secondborn and elevating them to the firstborn, isn't he? And guess what he does with us? Same thing. He takes us to our third and fourth and one millionth born sons, and he elevates us to the same place, the same position. He elevates us who have no business having the double portion, who have no business having the inheritance, and he gives us the same inheritance as he does Jesus. Verse 16, why? Why Jesus? Why does Jesus get all of this? Why does Jesus get to be the firstborn? How, do, how does he get all the rank and, and, and uh, honor? Well, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Wow. That's a huge statement. The words by, for by him... Through him, for him. We could also translate those words as in, through, and to. And in, and in verses 19 and 20, Paul's going to repeat those same exact three words, except your Bible's probably going to translate them as in, through, and to. So, first, everything is in Jesus. All creation was in the Son. This is a huge concept. In other words, in the eternal Son, in the pre-existent Christ existed everything for creation. It came out of him. Like Eve came out of Adam. Everything came out of Christ. Christ is, you know, scientists today are still searching for the theory of everything, right? How do we explain all the mysteries of the universe? Is it gravity, which they actually still can't prove? Is it string theory? Is it quantum mechanics? And so we, they, they, spend, they spend thousands of hours trying to figure out what holds the universe together. Paul says it's Jesus. Jesus is the theory of everything. He is everything. Wow. Everything is in Christ. Everything is through Christ or, or by Christ. It's through Christ. In other words, he made it happen. He is the creator. And then finally, it is for Christ or unto Christ. In other words, it all exists for him. It's all his. Everything is his. As the firstborn son, he, he, he had it all, he gave it all, he gets it all back. That's what Paul's saying. Everything revolves around him. All things, it says. All things, verse 16. All things were created. In other words, the whole universe... This is what makes Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 say, say to us as Christians, everything is yours. <laughs> All things are yours. Hey, why are you taking sides in church? Why are you saying I'm of, I'm of Pastor Paul or I'm of Pastor Apollos or I'm of Pastor Peter? Why are you doing that? And, here's his, and then here's his logic. Don't you know that everything is yours? He literally says, don't you know that the cosmos is yours? The universe is yours? What? How can the universe be mine? Because it's Jesus's. And guess what Jesus is? A very good sharer. He's a very good sharer. He's a really good older brother. 
right? He doesn't get bitter that he has to share his stuff with us. In fact, he likes to do it. So beware super spiritualism like the Colossians who would say, no, we have to deny ourselves from all these earthly things. The body is bad. The physical is bad. Or all earthly pleasures are bad. That's not Christianity, y'all. Sure, there are some things that we are not intended to do and partake in. And that's because of love. That's because to do them, sexual sin, right? Uh, there, There are limits, there are boundaries to what God allows us sexually. Why? Because those boundaries are loving. Those boundaries are worshipful and they are loving and they allow us to function in love instead of just becoming selfish, right? And seeking our own pleasure all the time. So we need to beware of a super spirituality that says, oh, this is a spiritual activity and this is a secular activity. Don't do secular things. No, the Bible doesn't teach that. All I need is Jesus. No, you need Jesus and you need all the good things he gives you that point you back to him. You need Jesus and you need your medicine. You need Jesus and you might need your therapist. Right? Anybody testify? <laughs> right? That's a gift from God. Don't look at me and say, oh no, I just need Jesus. No, no. You need the things that Jesus has given us because he is the Lord of all things. And all things are yours. They are given to you. Verse 18, verse 17, he is before all things. In him all things hold together. He's just continuing the same line of thought. Jesus sustains the universe. He holds it all together. Verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. Paul's not going backwards here. He's going forward. He's going forward. He started us at the beginning of time. Jesus is Lord of creation. And in this statement, by saying that Jesus is the head of the church, he's taking us to the new creation. So Jesus is Lord of creation, and he's the Lord of the new creation, the church. His body, the church, is the new creation. Yes, everybody listen to me. Yes, little, little old Grace Baptist Church of Bowie, Maryland, we are the new creation of God. Do you believe that? I get it. It's hard to believe, isn't it? Because we got a lot of issues, <laughs> We, we got a lot of problems. We got, we got a lot of things. We got a lot of sin. We got a lot of struggles. We've been through some stuff, haven't we? And yet we are the new creation. And listen, Christ is our head. That's comfort right there, isn't it? Christ is our head. Like the sun as the image, now the church is the image. We reflect him. We reflect Jesus. We're like Jesus. We reveal Jesus. How? In our dependency. Christ, the eternally begotten, eternally generated Son, is always fully dependent on the Father. All that is Jesus flows from the Father. You with me? Now, add the next, add the next thing to the train here. All that is you, all that is us as a church, flows from the Son. The same way that Jesus would stand up when he was on earth and he would say, I don't do anything without the Father. I only do what Father, what Abba tells me to do. I only say what Abba tells me to say. If I judge, it's because Abba has given me judgment. If I give life, it's because the Father has given me life. 
Listen, is that, is that the language coming out of your mouth? Do you, do you stand around saying, I only do what Jesus tells me to do? I only say what Jesus tells me to say. If I do anything, it's because Jesus is, is telling me to do it and allowing me to. Come on now. That's usually not our train of thought, is it? But it can be, and it should be. Why? Because he's our head. He's our source. He's our Lord. We depend on him. He is the beginning. Verse 18, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He is the beginning. He is the arche. He is the source. He is the first principle. It's, it's literally the same word as ruler that Paul has already used. Jesus is the ruler. Why? How? Because of his resurrection from the dead. He is the firstborn from the dead. Listen, without the resurrection, th- this scripture wouldn't exist, would it? We would not, you would not be in this room on a Sunday morning if there was no resurrection, right? This is just a big, huge waste of time. This is just like any other religion. It's just a bunch of moralism. It's just a bunch of rules if there is no resurrection. But because Jesus is the resurrection, he is therefore life. He is the source. He is the beginning. He is the preeminent one. He is the one who gives life to us. He is the firstborn from creation, and now he is the firstborn from the dead, Paul says. Because when he dies, when Jesus dies, what happens to his rank? What happens to him being the representative of the family? Remember all those things that the firstborn son gets? All that honor and glory? What happens when, he's, when he dies? And not only dies, dies a, 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 de- a shameful death, a criminal death. To, to everybody in that society, to every Jew in that society, you're eliminated from the family, aren't you? That's not my son. I disown that, that one. But what if that son comes back to life? <laughs> what if that son that died a criminal's death died the death of a dog, died the death of a slave. What if that guy comes back to life? What does he get back? All the rank, all the glory, all the honor, all the power. He is the firstborn from the dead. Wow. Wow. And and Paul will also say he is the firstfruits. This is important for us in our, in our lives. This is, this, is now, this is now the controlling principle of our lives. That from death, life. From death, life. One more time. <laughs> from death, life. That is the controlling principle of your life. Big picture, you're going to die. And then what's going to happen? Life. You will be raised to life. But little, everyday life, little everyday situations. How does life come? How, how can there be the abundance of life? Only when you are willing to die. Only when you are willing to let go of everything you're holding on to, everything like Pastor Andrew was talking about. See, when, you, when you're grabbing on to everything, I got to be the best, I got to be controlling, I got to have the power, that's death. You got to let that die. You have to put it to death. And that's where Paul will take them. By chapter 3, he's going to say, put to death, therefore, all that is earthly within you. You see what he's doing? He's saying the principle of of, of death and resurrection needs to be at work in your heart every single day. You need to be willing to die to self every single day. And that's how life will grow 
in your relationships, in your workplace, in your parenting, in your marriage, in, in your relationship with your mom and dad, all of it. That's how life will come. And where does this leave Jesus? He is preeminent. He is supreme. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Wow. You know, Jesus didn't go kicking and screaming to the cross. Jesus wasn't up in heaven and the Father and the Holy Spirit, they walked up to him and they're like, hey, Jesus, hey, eternal son, we got some bad news for you. We want you to incarnate. And Jesus was like, nope, I'm not doing that. No way. Ask the Spirit to do it. It's his turn. <laughs> you realize none of that happened, right? God was pleased to dwell among us. Think about that. Just think about that. Just that phrase. That all the fullness of God was pleased to enter into a human shell and be born and stub his toe and, and, and live among humans and be criticized and ultimately falsely accused and murdered for us. And he didn't go because he was forced. He didn't go because the father twisted his arm. He went because he loves you. He was pleased. Uh, he was happy to do it. You know how when somebody looks at you and says, I'm happy to do it, and you don't really believe them? You're kind of like, are you though? Are you really happy to do it? Or are you just doing it because you feel obligated? Listen, one day you're going to stand in front of Jesus, he's going to look you in the eye, and he's going to say, I was happy to do it. And you're going to believe him. You're going to be like, I, I actually believe you were happy to save me. Wow. What grace, what love. Number two. Fully trust the fullness of your salvation. So fully trust the fullness of Christ. Number two, fully trust the fullness of your salvation. Verse 20. Our salvation is described in verse 20. Through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Paul's moving us from incarnation to atonement, isn't he? He's describing what salvation is. Here we see in verses 19 and 20, we see those same three little words. In through to. In through to. Verse 19, in him, all the fullness. Verse 20, through him, to reconcile to himself all things. What is Paul doing? Why does he pick the same exact three little Greek words. He's connecting creation to new creation, creation to reconciliation. He's saying what Jesus did in Genesis 1, he's doing in you. He's doing it all again. He's doing something new. He's giving humanity a do-over, a big giant cosmic do-over. Why and how? Because all the fullness of God is in him. Now it flows through him so that everything can be brought back to him. When he did that in creation, Adam and Eve, they messed it up, didn't they? And so what does Paul say? All things have to be reconciled to God, don't they? Christian, what that means is all things... <laughs> 
everything in nature, everything in creation. Why are there tornadoes? Why are there hurricanes? Why are there tsunamis? Why are there coronaviruses? Why is there leukemia? On top of that, why is there sin in our hearts? Why do we get guns and go shoot up spas? Why do we do that? Why, do, why are we grouchy? Why are we greedy? Why are we like this? Because everything has to be reconciled to God, doesn't it? And that's what Jesus has done. He's, he's given it a big do-over through his life. All creation is in disarray. But listen, one day all creation will be made right, won't it? No more hurricanes. No more tsunamis. No more leukemias, no more back pain, no more headaches, no more eye trouble, no more greed and grouchy and anger and and selfish. It'll all be gone. Why? Because everything reconciled to God. God is reconciling us to God. God, the God-man Jesus, is reconciling us to Father God. Reconcile. What does that mean? It's an exchange of hostility for friendship. That's the definition. When we exchange enmity for friendship, we are reconciled to God. How did he do it? By making peace by the blood of his cross. He made peace between God and man by propitiating for us. Listen, listen. Jesus did not make peace with God by eradicating God's wrath and justice. God's wrath and justice did not go away, did it? Cross. Habakkuk said this. Remember Habakkuk 3? In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk's prayer was not, hey God, can you forget that whole wrath thing? That was not his prayer. Because listen, if there is no wrath and justice of God, you are doomed. You are doomed. You are doomed. If, if God is not angry at sin, if he just lets sin go forever and ever and ever, you know what that's called? Hell. That's called hell. And, he just, and that's, that's not what he's offering us. He's offering us peace by the blood of the cross. He's saying, look, justice will be satisfied, wrath will be satisfied, but in wrath I'm going to bring in mercy. I'm going to add mercy to the wrath. And so what, how did that happen? God took our place by the blood of his cross. He took the wrath. He took the judgment. He took the penalty. He took the payment that was needed. And he carried it. And he carried it to, up the hill to the cross and sacrificed himself. Here's the picture Paul has just painted for us. Remember where we started. Go back to where we started. Jesus is the image. Jesus is the one at the center of the temple. He is the one that is to be worshipped in the center of the, of the temple. And how do we, how do we worship? We bring, we bring a sacrifice. We bring a blood sacrifice to the deity in the center. What did Paul just say? He just said that Jesus is both the deity in the center of the temple that needs to be worshipped, and Jesus is the sacrifice brought to the deity in the center of the temple. Isn't that amazing? Well, wait, what's left for me to do? You got it. Nothing. (laughs) Nothing. Faith. Faith. Hold on, we're getting there. Faith. Guys, this is objective reconciliation. This is good news. This is 
This is Jesus paying for your human sin with his human life. This is substitution. Verse 21, And you who are once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That's the before. You ever see those before and after pictures? Do you remember that old, do you remember the show um, Extreme Home Makeover? Anybody remember that? And the first, I think the first couple episodes, they would kind of, they would kind of do like a reno. And then eventually they were like, you know what? Let's just knock the whole house down. Remember? They'd get in there and they'd be like, listen, let's just bulldoze this thing and build these folks a whole brand new house. Guess what? That's what happened to you. See, God, God didn't do a reno on your heart. He didn't get in there and be like, well, you know, it's structurally sound. It's got a good foundation. If we just patch up these holes, maybe put in some new windows, coat of paint. Is that what God did for you? No. You know what God did? He came into your heart and he said, let's just knock this thing down because it's a disaster. <laughs> it is hostile. It is enmity, verse, verse 21. It is alienated, hostile, and evil. The only way to fix this problem is bring in the bulldozers. Knock it down. Start over. New heart. New creation. New spirit. And that's what God has done for us. Total depravity. But there's good news in verse 21. Once were. Those two little words. You once were. What does that mean? You're not anymore. Now you're verse 22. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. He has reconciled us by his body of flesh in his death to present you as what? Holy and blameless above reproach before him. Praise God. Can you grab hold of those three words right now? Can your heart just grab hold of this concept that you are holy and blameless and above reproach? And I know your counter argument. No, I'm not. I spent all day yesterday being bitter. I spent all day yesterday clicking on porn and stuff. I spent all week just yelling at my wife and kids. How can, Brady, how can you stand up and say that I am holy and blameless and above reproach? What's the answer? Grace. The imputed righteousness of God. Given to you. When the prodigal son came back home, after blowing it, after totally disrespecting dad. And he came back. He came to his senses in the mud. Remember? Does anybody remember? He comes to his senses in the mud, and he gets back to dad. And his, What's his plan? Do you remember his plan? I will return to dad as a slave. But is that how the story ended? Did dad take him back as a slave? No. Dad looked at him and said, son, you're still one step away. You are not my slave. You are my child. You are holy and blameless and above reproach. Let me put the coat on you. Let me restore your rank. Let me make you like my firstborn. Let me give you, let me give you your brother's shoes and your brother's ring and your brother's coat. And let's kill your brother's cow and let's have a party. And we have an older brother who says, I'll be, the, I'll be the first in line to celebrate that my brother, my sister has come home. 
We are holy and blameless before Him. You see, these are the two biggest lies of Satan in your life. Here they are. The two biggest lies that Satan's going to tell you. Number one, you were never really that bad. Verse 21 says otherwise. No, you were hostile. You were an enemy. You were evil. I don't care who you are. You say, Brady, no, I wasn't. I got saved when I was four. I wasn't evil. Guess what? Sorry, moms and dads. Your kids are evil. <laughs> Daniel, make that the clip that we play on social media. <laughs> Pastor Brady saying, everybody's kids are evil. <laughs> Listen, it's true, though, isn't it? We're born, we're born evil. We're born with sin, aren't we? We're born enemies of God. Satan's number one, Satan's first lie? Oh, I, wasn't, I was never that bad. But you know what is second? You know, you know what's maybe harder to believe than verse 21? is verse 22. I am holy and blameless and above reproach now. Satan's second big lie is, you're not good enough. You still got to do more. You better add on to Jesus. You better show God you're worthy. You're not holy. Look at you. You're a disaster. You're not a son. You should be a slave. Go back as a slave. Approach God as a slave. That's Satan's second big lie to us. And that's why we stand up here all the time and we say, the gospel says these two things. Do you remember? What does the gospel say? I am more wicked than I ever imagined, but I am more loved than I ever hoped. Amen. See, both of those things are true. Colossians 1, 21 and 22. You see, you need nothing beyond what you already have in Christ. Do you believe that? You need nothing beyond what you already have in Christ. There are no add-ons. There's no, there's no supplemental salvation plan. There's no new information that you, have to, uh, that you have to grab hold of, Christian. There's no second blessing to wait for. There's no Jesus calling to be listening for. There is nothing left for you to do. There is nothing left for God to do. It is finished. It's done. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? And then number three. Number three. Don't stop trusting the fullness of Christ. Verse 23. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. If. I knew it. I knew there'd be a catch. There's always a catch. <laughs> now, come on now. Stay with me. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became, became a minister. If you continue in the faith, God has declared you holy and blameless and above reproach. If you continue in the faith, listen, is this a warning? Yes, it is. It is a warning. And it's a good warning, and we need to heed it. We're going to try to make some sense of it here in the next couple minutes. We do need to continue in the faith. What does he say? Stable, steadfast, not shifting. In other words, established in the gospel, not persuaded away from the gospel, not dissuaded is the word, not dissuaded away, not changing your mind about Christ and the gospel and the hope of the gospel. 
We have to continue in the faith. And listen, just as a side note, this is why discipleship is so important. This is why group life is so important. Because we get together and what do we help each other do? Continue in the faith. But notice what Paul does not say to us here. Please, please listen to me right now. He does not say, if you continue in all of the religious good works and deeds. He does not say that, does he? He does not say, if you continue to celebrate all of the festivals and high holy days and go to church every Sunday and have your daily quiet time, if you do that, then I will declare you holy. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, continue in the faith. Continue resting all of your trust, placing all of your trust in Jesus Christ. Listen, have you placed all of your trust in Jesus Christ yet? If you haven't, let today be the day you do it. Let today be the day you do it. Let me leave your fears with this amazing gospel truth. Every Christian who is truly in the faith, will continue in the faith. He who began the good work in you will be faithful to complete it, won't he? Jude 24 and 25, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority, before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. Every Christian who is in the faith will continue in the faith. We've got to hold these two truths in, in, in some tension. Every Christian will persevere in the faith. Christian, you have to persevere in the faith. Both of those are equally true. Show me somebody who made a profession of faith when they were five, and now they're 25, and they say, I don't really believe it anymore. I'm kind of an atheist now. Okay, they weren't saved at five. Church, we cannot put our faith in a profession of faith. That, that's super important. Parents, do not put your faith in your child's profession of faith. Is your child continuing in the faith? Small group leader, Sunday school teacher, do not put your faith in, the, in your folks' professions of faith. Ask them every week, do you still believe it? That's why we say, when I preach, I stand up and say, do you believe this? Because as your pastor, here's, what, here's all I got. All I've got as your pastor is me looking at you today and saying, do you still believe it? I don't care what you believed yesterday. I don't care what you believed last year. I don't care what you believed when you were five. Do you believe it right now? Do you believe it right now? And see, the enemy gets in our heads and he says, and then that's why we got people getting saved over and over again and making professions and walking aisles over and over and rededicating and reconsecrating and all of that nonsense. All of that is faith in you. It's not faith in Jesus. Continue in the faith in Jesus, full trust in Jesus. And that's why right now, after I pray, we're going to sing, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful faith, face. I pray that that's what you have done. I pray that it is what you will do and what you will continue to do every day. Let's pray.
Father, you loved us and sent your son. God loved us and sent his son. Where would we be without your great love? Where would we be without your great justice? Where would we be without your anger towards the sin that flows from your love for us? We would be trapped. We would be lost. We would still be verse 21. We would still be hostile. We would, we would still be um, doing evil deeds. We would still be enemies. But Jesus, you came. You shed your blood. You made it possible. You made it possible for us to have faith. God, help us to see that we, we must continue in the faith. But also help us to see that, Father, by your grace, you make us continue in the faith. That this is your work inside of us. God, may we challenge each other in this. May we not be afraid to even just look at each other and ask, do you believe it? Do you still believe it? Are you still trusting in Jesus alone? Not your attendance, not your efforts, not your self-righteousness, not your religiosity, not your asceticism, but Jesus alone, Jesus plus nothing. God, fill our hearts with these amazing truths, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.